You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Jennifer Ocker is a professor at the business school and is completely fitting that I met her on Twitter. We both uh, love using Twitter, and we found that we were following each other and retweeting all the same stories and found that we were almost thinking in sync. And so I sent her a message. I said, I think we actually need to meet in person. And I got to meet Jennifer and found that I had discovered one of the true gems on campus. And I think you'll agree at the end of this talk. Jennifer is an award-winning professor focusing on marketing, social networks, and happiness. And I think you'll be as delighted as I've been when I've seen her speak before. Without further ado, Jennifer. Thank you, Tina. So Tina's right. I kind of feel like there's like some weird, odd soulmate-ness. Like, it turns out, I know that's not a word, but uh, um, go with me for a second. So oddly enough, Tina names the same, uh, names her courses, the same thing I name my courses, even though we don't even know each other. And, you know, we find each other, uh, find each other's research so interesting. And so it's really such a pleasure to be here, partly because of Tina and partly because I'm such a fan of what we've created here, what you've created with DFJ. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how ideas build momentum and take off. Um, and that, that topic is particularly, um, I don't know, personally meaningful for me right now um, because we, my husband and I, Andy Smith, my co-author, um, created a book recently that helps unpackage some of our research on happiness and how ideas spread and um, how to create infectious action, particularly by harnessing social media. Um, so it was... Um, it was really a perfect moment for me to be able to come over here and meet you. So thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by mentioning um, the dragonfly is the only um, insect that can fly in any direction when all four wings are operating in sync. So it can go any direction. I believe it's 50 times faster than a butterfly or any other sort of similarly sized insect. Um, it's a symbol of happiness and transition. And we refer to the dragonfly effect as this idea that small acts can create big change uh, and uh, create momentum, infectious action, when the meaning of that small act or the body of the dragonfly um, is incredibly important to you. That the mere thought of um, what that small act might be um, would bring happiness at some level. And I'll unpack some of these ideas uh, in a few examples, but... Um, let me first start with a few of our studies on happiness. We've been doing research in the area of what drives happiness versus what people think drives happiness uh, for about, I don't know, five, ten years now. This was with a, a host of collaborators at the GSB and other schools. And I wanted to uh, foreshadow some of the stories that I'll be, um, I'll be telling you about today uh, with this research. If you remember anything about this talk and why some ideas can build momentum and why other ideas um, sort of don't ever build momentum, it would be these three things. Um, happiness, meaning, 
and stories. So let me try and back that up. So first, the research on happiness. Um, happiness drives many of us, and yet uh, oftentimes down the wrong, wrong road. And it's not till uh, later on in our life or an experience that we realize, you know, sort of how um, misdirected we actually were based on our own true beliefs. Um, so let me give you an, a couple of examples. There's three happiness paradoxes that I wanted to seed with you. The first most commonly um, uh, commonly held belief is that happiness is a single construct. Um, so if I ask you, Jeff, Jeff, uh, are you happy? And you say, yes. good. And then I ask you, what's your name? Eva. Eva, are you happy? And what would you say? You think so? <laughs> a more contemplative person. Uh, I'm not saying that you are not, Jeff. You seem like a very contemplative person. Uh, but the idea there is that when you're thinking of happiness and you're saying maybe yes versus definitely yes, that at some level we think we're kind of talking the same language, that I know what you mean and it's probably something similar or comparable to what Jeff means. And yet we find in some recent research with Sepp Kumar and Cassie McGillner, uh, and there's work by Jeannie Zai and others that have... Um, focused on these two types. There's really two types of happiness. Um, and uh, one is this happiness where if you ask people, what are the first associations that come to mind with happy? You might say excited and pleasurable and it feels good and I want something desirable, uh, energizing. Uh, and then uh, the second type, so let's call that exciting happiness for a second. Uh, the second type of happiness is um, is associated with a di very different set of associations. Let's say I asked Jeff what's happiness, and he says it's actually meaningful and peaceful and content, fulfilling. Um, it's simple, maybe even small, but fundamental. And, um, and let's call that peaceful content, uh, happiness for a second. And our contention is that when, depending on the gender, depending on the age, depending on the culture, that when you ask, are you happy, um, people are fundamentally giving you, the, you know, the same response, yes and yes, but having two very different conceptions in their heads. Now, um, the second paradox is that we often assume happiness to be stable. So, um, you know, you're making a decision. What's your name? Yeah, yeah. Kampana. Kampana? Yeah. And how old are you? <laughs> go for it. We won't tell anyone, and this is not at all on video. Go ahead. Go ahead. 27. All right. So, and you're making decisions, right? You're 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 thinking about you know jobs or grad schools or um, you know houses you might live in, who you might marry or not, um, and it's based on. This is a little too personal, right? Is, is this too personal? We'll move away from you shortly. It's, you can hang on. You can do this. Um, so the basic idea there is that you're making decisions based on your current definition of happiness. So if that's excitement, excitement, happiness, you're going to make decisions based on that. If it's peaceful happiness, you're going to make decisions based on that, and they're very different decisions. Uh, what's important in this research, though, is that happiness is moving. So what you're feeling right now at age 27, even though you presume that's the same type of happiness you'll feel at age 35 and 40, um, we show that it systematically changes. And there's more nuanced ways to think about it. It doesn't just move from excitement at age 20 or 15 or 17 to peaceful, which is age 50 or 60. It's also um, more nuanced than this. This is research by Sepp Kamvar and Jonathan Harris in their We Feel Fine data set, which is a gorgeous data set. I highly recommend you go to wefeelfine.org. 
um, or check out their book. Um, it's just an amazing, amazing uh, data set uh, around the world of blogs. What they've done is they've combed um, the blogosphere and grabbed all mentions of I feel and I am feeling in the blogosphere. So we have 12 million data points to play with, uh, what you're feeling, when you're feeling it, um, uh, how it changes, and incoming data is coming in every 10 minutes. So the crawler uh, updates the, the blogosphere. So now what we can do is we can start to see when you are 27 versus 14 versus 50, what are you saying you feel? And as you correlate the I feel happy or I am feeling happy with the other kinds of words, what are those other kinds of words, um, uh, what are the other kinds of words co-vary with happiness over the course of time? So the first big finding is that for teenagers and um, you know, young 20-year-olds, uh, happiness really does mean excited. And for 40-year-olds, um, 50-year-olds, happy really means peaceful. That's, those are the, those are the uh, and it's not peaceful is like a boring way. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got, you know, a lot to look forward to. There's a lot of exciting things. But uh, it does mean something fundamentally different. Now, it's not stable. It does uh, change over the life course. What this is is a depiction of five-year increments over the course of time that shed light on the emotional um, landscape of 14 to 17-year-olds. What are these people blogging about? And when they say they're happy, what do they mean? These 14 to 17-year-olds start out simple. So this is your 14-year-old. You say, how are you feeling? And he says, fine. And what did you do today? Nothing. There's not a rich emotional vocabulary you know, behind there. Um, and then you start to creep up uh, into the 15 to 18-year-olds. And then the, the amount of angst, uh, I feel unloved, un not understood, alone, angsty, just a tremendous amount of angst uh, perpetuates the the blogosphere um, in that age frame. Um, by the time you hit 23 to 26, 27, uh, you want to conquer the world. So there's a lot of mentions of feeling powerful or where money or the possibility of getting money actually does co-vary with happiness. So you hear that money doesn't always co-vary with happiness. That's not true. For a certain time of life, money or status or possibilities of those, of those things as you move along the trajectory very much do co-vary with happiness. The problem is you make your decisions around who you might marry or what house you might have or the job you might have. And then, boom, your meaning of happiness and your emotional state changes to where you start val uh, valuing balance. And then people start blogging about their bodies in their young 30s, perhaps because it's the first time that they've gone downhill uh, in a big way. <laughs> and then um, talking about children and family and connectedness and gratefulness and then happy and calm. Uh, one thing we find to be very robust um, echoing Laura Carstensen's work and others, is that in general, there is a decrease in angst and unhappiness and, and therefore an increase in, the, in, in happiness as one ages. And some of you might know that research done here out of Stanford. Um, but the meaning of happiness does fundamentally change. But it's not just a sort of a, a path along the life cycle. We also show that, um, that these meanings of happiness or types of happiness change um, across conditions. So I'm just going to ask you guys to breathe normally. You're off the hook. Just breathe normally. Keep breathing. Uh, so that's what you're going to do. For you, I'd like you to start, um, and ideally for the rest of this presentation, uh, breathe incredibly deeply. So let's all do it together. I'm not even good at this. I'm actually the 
a quick breather. It's not healthy. Uh, so, so you guys keep deep breathing as long as you can, ideally through this entire presentation. Deep breathing. Up, down. Now what we do is in this particular study is we give those two conditions to two discrete experimental groups. And what we find is the young individuals that were in the control group, we ask, what are the first words that come to mind when you think of happiness, or how do you define happiness? And they will, again, say, it's excitement. That's what it means. It's exciting and energizing and fun. Uh, for you, even though you're the same age as these individuals, we say, what is happiness for you? And you define happiness like an older person. You believe happiness is peaceful, contentment, meaning something grounded. So controlling for age, these individuals start to look at life in a very different lens or different uh, way. Not only that, but they start to make decisions in very different ways. So uh, we'll give you guys a choice of two teas. One is um, both are herbal teas, uh, keeping that control. But yours is um, a chamomile that's going to be relaxing. And yours is a peppermint that's going to be refreshing. Um, and we'll say, which one do you want? And you consistently ask for the refreshing peppermint tea. And you consistently ask for the peaceful chamomile tea that's relaxing. So it has a fundamental impact on the music you pick, or the teas you choose, or how you make decisions in life. Um, the third paradox is that we think we can build meaning through short-term happiness. Um, we need a mix of short and long-term happiness. Um, and so one thing I often do is I'll run surveys uh, based on the data that um, comes in from my audience. So I didn't have an opportunity to ask you, what is one thing you could do to improve your happiness? But this is a very representative, qualitative state of the answers that you tend to get. Um, so I'm just going to let you read it for a few minutes. This is one single thing people could do to improve their happiness. Now, there's two things I'd like to draw your attention to, <laughs> beyond the last one, which I love. Um, one is that, um, that uh, they're actually all kind of untenable, right? I mean, to some degree, right? I'm going to fix my employer. Um, you know, I'm going to increase free time and rest time. I'm going to spend more time in Sedona. I'm going to spend more time with good friends. No one says I'm going to spend less time. They're just going to shove more stuff into their life. Um, so there's not this, you know, a very realistic sense of how they might potentially get happier. But the second thing I wanted to draw your attention to is that um, in some ways these small sort of pleasures um, are, are populated, um, you know, just having a little bit more free time or a little bit more time at Sedona. And other times these more deeply meaningful um, long hard slogs, we call them, uh, tend to be um, co-vary with happiness, like actually get a new job that would um, do something. Um, so the, the answer isn't always that it's um, um, you know, something that's short-term fix or long-term fix. It's really having a sense of both of those things and knowing when to pursue one versus the other. Um, so this is work by Lee Van Boven and Gilovich. Uh, it's a framework that they pulled together. I believe it's Lee Van Boven and his colleagues um, that pulls apart the shallow type of meaning that's fleeting, like for chocolates, versus that's long-lasting, like a nice house, with happiness that has deep meaning, such as giving to a charity or meditation. 
um, versus happiness that's both deep meaning and is long lasting, um, potentially having a family or, or even um, self-improvement or uh, education. Uh, so the answer here, there, is not, again, that one type is necessarily always better than the other. It's that you need a mix between these, but you need to be aware of what things you're chasing are deeply meaningful versus short-term meaningful. So based on these three paradoxes, I wanted to argue um, how might we rethink happiness. Um, and the, and the um, idea I'd like to put forth is rather than finding happiness, could we create environments that enable that happiness? And what would that look like? Um, and there's a lot of research that starts to show that if we unplug from this goal of finding happiness, um, that to what is an environment that would allow for happiness, not only do you become less self-oriented, um, but that you actually make decisions and create environments that do correlate with sustainable happiness for you as well as others. So what would that environment look like? There's significant amount of research to show that um, finding a way to enable people in that environment to find meaning is incredibly important, to fundamentally find connections, and to feel that they're a part of something bigger. Um, there's other factors as well, but these three are um, sometimes lacking in the environments where, which we're trying to find jobs right now, or even the startups that you're trying to build here at Stanford um, and outside of Stanford. Now the question is, how is this really possible when this is what we're finding ourselves working in? Um, you know, you see the technology, you see the computer, you see the two cell phones, you see the headphones, and here I'm telling you, go uh, find meaning and, you know, be connected and be a part of something bigger. And this is the environment you find yourself. And in fact, ironically, uh, there's evidence to suggest that we're even further apart than ever before even though we have technology to bring us closer. Uh, indeed, the paradox of technology is that Twitter and Facebook, even though we had this lovely story about how I now know Tina, because of Twitter, enhanced by Twitter, Twitter, you know, made possible by Twitter, at, a, at an aggregate level, we're also seeing a lot of findings that suggest that the more time we spend on technology, even though it was created to connect us, that we're feeling even less connected to especially close others, that we're feeling not in the here and now. So are you guys still deep breathing? Yeah? So what you guys are feeling right now, uh, and one reason I like to do this experiment is that this group is always like, they are enraptured by the talk. Not, not to say that you guys aren't. You love the talk too. I'm sure you like it very much. But these guys are really liking it. So I like doing the experiment with my audience. Um, and you're present in the here and now, and yet, ironically, we're giving all of this technology to all of us, and we're less in the here and now um, at an aggregate level. Is technology making us less communal, less patient, less connected? And there is some evidence to suggest that there are conditions in, under which these trends are indeed happening. Um, our connections are more electronic, but they needn't be less human. We used to communicate by post, and we can still communicate by post, uh, but something seems lacking. The question I'd like to pose today, and then build on these ideas to talk about ideas that 
have momentum, that create infectious action that you can take for your own companies or your own ideas is a simple question. Can we build meaning, connections, and being a part of something bigger through technology? So um, I'd like you to sit with that question for a few minutes while I tell you a story um, uh, about my own self. Uh, this was one um, before Tina said we both loved Twitter, like one year before that, I hated Twitter. Like I thought it was ridiculous, waste of time. My husband, who loves technology, um, would spend time on Twitter or blogging or playing around with video or trying to understand Google Analytics. And um, we would have this very perplexing conversation at family dinners. You know, what did you do today? Well, you know, I tweeted and uh, I played around a little bit with some blogs and then I'd be like, are you kidding me? Really? Like, honestly? And, and he would similarly be perplexed by me. You're a marketing professor. What you do today? Well, I taught marketing. Do you know anything about social media? No. Why would I need to know something about technology? And he would go, you're a marketing professor. Really? Honestly? You have to learn something. Uh, and so these were the kinds of conversations we were having. Uh, and I would tell him, listen. This is what I see as being the reality of social media. I do not, I think the more time you spend on these things, the more egocentric you are, the more we get crazy stalkers hunting us down, and the more that we're experiencing ADHD. Um, and it all changed for me two and a half years ago, right before I met Tina. Uh, I was actually at Berkeley teaching a creativity and innovation course, and, which is the same one that you teach, right? And uh, crazy. And, um, and um, what I learned over the course of now 15 years of teaching is that no one remembers my lectures. Uh, and I have empirical data to support the fact that people don't remember my content. I email my students one to two years after my classes, and I say, what do you remember from my classes? And they'll email me back and say, yeah, nothing. <laughs> You were a very nice person, and I remember enjoying your classes. They were great. Don't remember anything. And then, like, you'll go, really, honestly, like, nothing? You know? And they'll, and they'll say, oh, I remember. You made us turn on your cell phones and then work in a learning into the phone conversation when people would embarrassingly leave on their cell phones. Uh, if you think you're embarrassed now, you should see how embarrassed my students get when I make them pick up the cell phone. It's horrible. Um, or I remember, like, chicken, chickens don't have lenses, and you taught a case that said chickens do have lenses. Who knew that chicken had lenses? This ridiculous, innocuous stuff. And so um, during this class, I said, instead of me trying to think what should you remember from my class, let me crowdsource this and say, what do you remember from my class? And most people sent me one or two bullets. Robert Chatwani um, sent me a PowerPoint deck. And I just wanted to share with you that deck, one of the basic premises of the course uh, is this idea of reversing the rules. So if you are in a brainstorming session um, and you, you, know, you guys all brainstorm an idea, what you'll get is a bell-shaped curve of ideas, right? So some of them are really crappy, some of them are really good, and most of them are mediocre. And if you simply reverse the rules, take every idea that's populated out in the brainstorm session and just reverse it. So let's say you're doing a brainstorm session for Coke and someone says, let's come up with like, you know, a giant, you know, 
uh, red Coke can and you say, let's make it blue and shrink it. You know, you just take every idea and you literally just reverse it without even thinking. What ends up happening is now you've expanded the bell-shaped curve. Now you have a whole lot of really crappy, crappy ideas, like a lot of bad, bad ideas. But so do you have a lot more excellent ideas. And if the idea of brainstorming is to defer judgment and slice off at a later point in time, excellent ideas. Now you've got a larger sample size of excellent ideas. And he took this and he thought about how it integrated into his life. Uh, recently, or before my class, his best friend Samir was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, Samir, uh, Stanford undergraduate, started Dosti Project here. For those of you who know Dosti, a social entrepreneurship-minded club here. Um, and uh, brilliant. I mean, he was, you know, um, I believe an engineer here studying at Stanford, went on to all these startups, Monkey Bin and others. And, uh, and then he found someone he loved, and he married her named Raina. She's uh, right there. And um, he was diagnosed with leukemia about uh, six months or so before my class um, in 2007. Uh, when they found out that Samir was diagnosed with leukemia, they reached around to figure out how they could do, and they found out a friend of a friend of theirs, Benet, was also diagnosed with leukemia. So it was an East Bay um, uh, bred individual who was a Boston doctor at the time, also incredibly young. And this is a, the PowerPoint deck that Robert shared with me, and I'm just going to go through it um, silently with you. Uh, this is Samir on the lower left, and that's Vinay on the upper left. They built out two essentially organizations. If you're going to reverse the rules and not find this to be an acceptable situation and said, instead say, we're going to treat this like any organizational endeavor, one single goal, 20,000 individuals, and we'll run that instead of a revenue model. With that being the goal, we'll have 20,000 individuals. They had team Vinay and Samir. They had marketing leads. They had operation leads, education. They had local leads, not dissimilar to the Obama campaign. Uh, they built out instant brands. Um, and they didn't have the luxury that many of us do. What is our brand and how are we going to distribute it? They had to put these up immediately. And it was so clear what the call to action on these websites were. Um, and they executed like crazy. Every single link here is live. It's a strategy that they created. So if you hear this story and you want to act and you feel like you could, but you don't know how to make a video, you go over here and you click on how do you make a video and you have a dummy's guide to video creation. Or let's say you work at Cisco and you want to be able to run a drive in Cisco this Friday, but it seems hard and painful and you don't even know where to start. Well, you go click on the donor drives and you find out the dummy's guide to holding a donor's drive and everything here is cut and paste. So you replace the text in red and now you have your letter to John Chambers. Dear John Chambers, I want to run a drive this Friday. Um, this is what I need to do. Cut, paste, send. Thank you, John Chambers. We ran a drive last Friday. This is how many people we got. This is what we need to do next. Yes, cut, paste, send. Social change in a box. The ability to provide tools and templates for anyone who wants to act, making it abundantly clear and easy and even fun to be able to act. People made widgets. People that never even knew Samir and Vinay made widgets. People made videos. So Indian celebrities that heard this story that wanted to do something would video uh, a plea or call for action in funny and, and humorous ways oftentimes and pop them up on YouTube. The results? This is the United States. 450 people were emailed. The single email from Robert and 
it went out to all of these people who ended up forwarding that email on, and all of these are bone marrow drives that happened in 11 short weeks. 470 of them sprang up. 24,611 individuals registered in the bone marrow registry in 11 short weeks. A perfect match for Samir was found in that time. Vinay had a good match. And Samir shared his story from the hospital, and he blogged prolifically. He felt so lucky. He found this mat, um, you know, how to live life to the fullest. And he talked about happiness. He talked about happiness both in terms of excitement, but also in terms of meaning and gratefulness and connectedness and being a part of something bigger. And he showed his bone marrow transplant on YouTube so that anyone in the future who's scared of what a bone marrow transplant might actually look like could go and see on YouTube what does it look like. Uh, and the lessons they learned were fundamental. Uh, the power of a clear, specific, simple goal. The power of the ability to reverse the rules and instead of what I would have done, which is like, can I bring you a lasagna? Can I you know, take care of your kids or something like that? They said, no, we're running this like a corporation. We're going to get 20,000 individuals in the bone marrow registry telling a good and truthful story. Um, the power of stories is what makes people act, even um, well-argued arguments are not nearly as persuasive. And the opportunity to design for collaboration, enabling others to take on this goal, Robert and Samir's friends and family couldn't have gotten 24,611 individuals in the bone marrow registry themselves. You have to design campaigns so your single focus goal is connected to the story, which is, resounds and resonates with others that hear this. Um, within three short months of his bone transplant, though, Samir passed on. He fought hard, but sadly passed away. Um, and that's a picture of Samir and Reina. And they celebrated his life by sharing his memorial service with the world. And 6,000 people um, saw his memorial. And then they had a successful transplant, but relaxed. And he went through alternative treatment and passed away a few months after Samir. But the reason I'm telling you this story and the reason why I was so fundamentally impacted by this story is that the purpose revealed from the 24,611 donors that were registered, um, 266 people were matched just in one year based on the 24,611 registered. That's 266 people who's, who had hope that had an immediate match, as many of you know, the power of a match is not so much this just whether it's perfect match. It also depends very much on how quickly you get the match, and that will also have a significant impact on whether you survive. Uh, the chances go up to 75% survival rates on average if you can get an immediate perfect match versus you have to take a long period of time. It can drop to 40 40 50%. Uh, so it's a world of difference if you can get it immediately. And as I was listening to this presentation, all I could think about was, what do I do now? Could I water this? Would this story grow? And how would that make me feel? And all I could think about was happy. And so we took that story, and when we came back to Stanford, 
Um, we wrote a case on it so anyone can download it freely and figure out how they can do social change in a box. And then we taught a class where we teach MBAs and design students and non-GSB students uh, how, to, how to use this type of model to grow their own ideas. And we encourage those ideas to be not based just on profit models, but based on social good in the world, in part because of Samir and Vinay. And the first words out of Samir and Vinay's mouth, actually, what, after they got the 25000 was, let's get another 25000 And you can imagine Robert going, like, you're kidding me. Like, we just got 25,000 people and a perfect match for you. And you're saying, go get another 25,000 to save other lives. Um, So what we did with that legacy of both of them is double it and say, can we get 100,000 sheiks swabbed in the next year? Um, And students here at Stanford and corporations are participating in it. Um, and I think it's just incredibly powerful to think about how you take legacy, something that would truly make someone happy, and how do you design for the ripple effect. I wanted to back out the four wings of this dragonfly model, which came from this core story, which I think shed light on what ideas build and have momentum, which ideas don't. The first is focus. The team Samir did not try and get everyone in the registry. What they did was they took 20,000 South Asians. They focused on um, well-connected families, people that were parents, those who could easily relate to the story. Uh, I mentioned to you that Robert sent out a well-crafted email telling the story and what people could do to help to 450 people, just 450 people. And that is the email that when extended to other people who were connected to these original 450 people could spread it. The, sec- the design principles associated with focus is it has to be humanistic. Um, so these people that are focused on brand or product or competitor, um, that's where the goal doesn't get as much traction. But when you have a human-centered goal, um, like what would Samir want, what would be good for Samir, that's when goals actually create life. It, it has to be actionable and testable and clear and happy. Uh, the mere thought of achieving that goal would bring you a peaceful kind of happiness is incredibly powerful. There's a lot of research on emotional contagion. So if you're chasing a goal that you believe would make you fundamentally happy, there's actual energy, not dissimilar to time and money as a resource. The, the mere thought of actually achieving that goal, that would bring you happiness or meaning, uh, is a resource that's oftentimes not, uh, uh, that's not uh, unleashed in many campaigns. The second wing is you have to grab attention. This is designed um, to get someone's attention, essentially a hammer. Uh, In the case of Samir and Vinay, um, they made it so that people turned and looked because they felt like they might know Vinay. Um, Robert, this is Vinay's wife, and these are Vinay's friends. And you could see if you are um, a a Stanford social entrepreneur, uh, you could see yourself in those pictures. And Robert gave Samir a baby at the moment and said, here, hold the baby, I'm going to take a picture. That's the only um, not truthful part of the story. Um, But the idea is that you can see yourself in every one of these pictures, so it makes you look. And the design principles here is that it has to be personal and makes you feel like it's speaking to you. And unexpected and visceral, it makes you feel something. And visual, it makes you look. Lance Armstrong owns yellow and Coke owns red and uh, breast cancer owns pink. And these colors aren't just simple branding campaigns that are throwaway. They make people look. And then after people look, then they decide, do I want to get engaged? And that is the third wing, engagement. 
Um, humans are not set up to understand logic. They're set up to understand stories. Um, in the case of Samir and Vinay, the stories were told not just on the website, which is less emotional, but through video and through word of mouth. Uh, the design principles here are what are the stories that why you created your idea, why you are here at Stanford, why are you building up this startup, um, what are those stories, and those stories as assets is an under-leveraged uh, tool. Authenticity, this idea of empathizing and being authentic is increasingly important. You're seeing people distrust for-profits, they're distrusting non-profits, they're um, distrusting corporations and governments right now, what people trust right now are their friends. And that's one reason why social media has taken off so much. Um, so what is an authentic message? And the last wing is enable others to take action. Um, here, this idea is how are you designing campaigns so that others can act? In the case of Samir, um, you know, it was social change in a box. It was tools and templates that made it so easy. If you wanted to do something, you could. Uh, a, a good litmus test of whether you've nailed this is, do others do other things that you don't expect but are absolutely helpful for you? I wanted to, and the design principles are just other. It's easy and fun and tailored and open. The psychology behind ideas that create infectious action is, is twofold. One theory is the ripple effect, that small acts can create big change, Malcolm Gladwell recently wrote that there's times in which um, social media is potentially a distraction, that actual revolutions and actual infectious action happen on the ground. And that is absolutely true in this case. People, Madge's in the back with a bone marrow uh, cheek swab table, and she is on the ground rather than, oh, I'm going to have to do it. I'm sorry. You have to answer the phone. Work in some learning into the phone conversation. You can do this. You can totally do this. It's just a notification. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so close and yet so far. All right, you're off easy this time, but the next time it rings, you're working on learning. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting is that um, Anglo-Americans have a heart, they have an easier time of believing that something that you do could have spread, and in fact, they believe it should have spread. In other Asian countries, to a greater degree, they don't believe that as much, but they do believe that small acts right now might have a big impact later. So if you recycle this water bottle right now, it might not improve the environment right now, but later it might. And I think long-term decision-making, and one reason why um, individuals, especially in individualistic cultures, have a harder time with thinking about that as basic ideas around what you believe is possible with small acts. The second theoretical paradigm that helps underlie these infectious actions and movements is emotional contagion. Uh, Fowler and Christakis and John Cassiopo and others talk a lot about emotional contagion. It refers to the tendency to catch or feel emotions not dissimilar to viruses. In fact, uh, people who are happy boost the chances that someone they know will be happy. Whether a friend's friend is happy has more influence than a $5,000 raise. One person's happiness can affect another's for as long as one year. And by the way, negative emotions are also contagious, and there's evidence to suggest they're even more viral, um, which has implications for cultures in which you're cultivating your startup idea. What kind of environment are you trying to enable? What environment are you allowing for happiness? So these are the four wings of the dragonfly. And isn't that cute? Here, here we go. 
Uh, I wanted to share a story that's a little bit lighter than just Samir, and then I'm going to close with some thoughts around happiness and around technology and around stories. Uh, this is Coca-Cola. So let's say you're out there in the world and you say, I get how this works for Samir. I get how it works for Robert. Um, I know where to go for resources, but you know I've got a brand or I've got an idea and I want to spread it. I want it to go viral. Um, I just wanted to tell you a small case study about Coca-Cola, which had an idea. And um, they had a single focus goal. They really wanted to connect with teenagers globally um, with the flagship brand, with Coca-Cola. And they wanted to do so through digital media. That was their hypothesis, is that we're not going to be able to connect with individuals globally unless we do it through digital media. Now, most companies at this point would say, okay, we've got our $350,000 marketing budget. Go give it to our marketing team. Go make your viral campaign. But instead of doing that, what they did was they divided the world up into seven teams. And we said, we're giving you $50,000 each. And so you guys are all going to get this single focus goal and try and make you know, an, an, uh, an authentic, an organic viral campaign. You're not going to engineer it. You're not going to SEO this thing. You're going to have it authentic and organic. Um, now, what's interesting is that six out of the seven groups failed in the sense that nothing really took off. And that's a very healthy, normal statistic. That's why uh, rapid prototyping and, um, and you know, failing faster is oftentimes a, a sort of a, an MO that many people here in the Valley and other places are taking on um, because it allows you to start experimenting. The winner, though, of this was the Coke happiness machine. And uh, I'm just going to show it to you.
I tell you this story because, um, let's see. Um, Forrest, will you come put it up? Thanks. Um, I tell you this story because um, um, even though they only spent $50,000 on that video, um, and you know they hit it in college campuses, not dissimilar to Stanford, at finals time, thank you, and um, when people were really depressed and they had these hidden cameras and everything came out and it was all very authentic, it was authentic, it was a surprise. Um, but they designed it with a large part of the Dragonfly model uh, in mind. The result in two weeks, and it was an organic search, just one tweet out, share the happiness, spread the video. No engineering the virality, it was all organic. And they wanted that, they wanted not to, they know they can engineer it. They know that they can figure out how to push things out. They wanted it to be natural. And so it was 2 million views on YouTube in two weeks. Um, uh, it was global. 50% of the uh, viewers were outside the US, and 70% of the blogs were non-English. 95% of the blog posts were positive comments, which, as you know, is unheard of. Uh, I'm a Pepsi drinker. I might make this switch. And there's some evidence to even suggest that it was tied to actual choice and preference. Um, what's so interesting, I think, about this story is that, you know, they had a lot of footage, like 12 hours of footage, and they sliced out the personal smiles. Like, you smiling, they would have cut that, right? They took it when the four of you were smiling together and that you were sharing the Coke. And so this emotional contagion, this shared emotion um, that spreads. I mean, you guys should have seen your faces. You were all laughing, and you weren't even there. Um, and this idea of a single focus goal and being able to grab attention through unexpectedness and uh, feeling like, oh, I could be there, uh, and telling a story and enabling stories to be told. They didn't architect it for the last wing that well, which is enable action, not as much as like, you know, uh, the old Spice guy or whatever. Yes, those of you who had answering machines or phone mates or whatever voice me messages with an old Spice guy, you made it your own. There's um, a lot of campaigns that allow you to make it really, honestly. <laughs> All right, I'm letting you off the hook this time. But if I hear one ring, <laughs> I'm diving in. Somewhere over there, you guys are unnoticed. Are you still deep breathing? <laughs> yeah? OK. Um, so this idea of how do you enable action, I mean, it's led to a big campaign around open Coke or open happiness, I believe. And you know, there's a lot of companies right now that are doing a great job in making things open, including Open Idea, which is, I think, a beautiful uh, initiative. Um, so what I wanted to do is just um, give you a few thoughts in closing. Um, stories connect us, and if you remember one thing from this talk, it might very well be um, ideas build momentum when you have a story and you share that story and that story resonates with others and then they come along for the ride um, or they build their own stories on top of yours, uh, often more than we expect. Humans are not ideally set up to understand logic. They're under, uh, set up to understand stories. Um, but stories and connections are everywhere, even here. Um, but connections are often not made by maximizing profits. And there's wonderful research by Kathleen Voss and her um, colleagues to show that people, when primed to think about money, step away from others. We need to foster environments that enable us to build meaning, to make connections, to be a part of something bigger. Um, by leveraging technology, and I would argue to you that your ideas that build momentum to the degree that they're technology-oriented are leveraging technology if your core story and your single focus goal has meaning, and that meaning resonates with others so that they can easily act with you. Those are the conditions 
where social technology and media can, in fact, enhance meaning and connections and being part of something bigger. And you're not tweeting about what you ate for breakfast in the morning, but you're doing something that has meaning. And even asking yourself right before you go you know, tweet or you go use the cell phone or you go pop on email is what I'm doing have meaning. And that being um, a decision criterion before you choose the tea or what to do right now, I think is very powerful because I do think, and I am a big fan, as Tina said, of social media. Uh, and in the context in which these things can be used for cultivating meaning, uh, connections, and being part of something bigger, I am uh, absolutely um, amazed by and I feel it enriches my mind. I think all we need to do is design for these ripple effects, that one small meaningful act taken when connected to others can drive massive change. Um, I mentioned that we took the story of Roberts and made it into a class and a book and uh, 100,000 cheek swabs uh, in honor of both Samir and Vinay who wanted to double their 25,000. Uh, we said, how beautiful would it be to get 100,000 people into the bone marrow registry and potentially even go to India in December and try and help the efforts there to actually create a national bone marrow registry to build and design an, uh, an effect that perhaps, just perhaps, in even one or two years could actually save the lives of potentially or get more than a million people in that bone marrow registry. So with that, I just wanted to conclude. And if you are inspired, by the way, to do a uh, quick cheek swab in true Dragonfly and Samir and Vinay fashion. We uh, have a table outside. It takes five minutes. And if you're 18 to 20, 50 or 60, you can do it. And it, it, um, it gives hope, immediate hope. And it's not just the possibility of saving a life and the technology to do bone marrow transfers, surprisingly, is so much easier than we think. But it gives, you the gift, gives people the gift of time. So on that note, I wanted to say happiness. Um, and transition, and I hope your ideas all have momentum. Thank you very much. That was terrific, Jennifer. So we have time for about 10 minutes of questions. You ready to do that? Great. Great. So who has the first question? Over here. Um, earlier this afternoon, I received a forwarded email. There's a sunny woman, an Indian, looking for bone marrow. Yeah, so Sanjana is um, a 41-year-old woman. I am about that age, too. She is eight-year-old twins. I have eight-year-old twins. And she has been finding, trying to find a bone marrow match for two years. Um, and, it's, um, and it's coming. It's, it's not good right now. Um, and so we've been working with um, Team Sanjana intensely for the next last two months. And in fact, uh, that's one reason we're going to India, to find her a match. Um, she's on compassionate care treatment as of this week. And we need to find a match in the next couple months, if, if that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's a problem right now. And we need to solve this problem. It's, it's not a hard problem to solve. Um, and we need to do it not just for her, but for her eight-year-old twin. Another question? Yeah. So, yes, over here. A question. When, when you talked about COPE, one of the things you said was they wanted it to uh, go viral 
organically and simplistically. And they, even though they could engineer it, they found that they, they wanted to do it the other way. What was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so when they had that 350000 and they gave the, the team the fifty grand to go do something, they wanted to learn from it. And even though they only spent $50,000 for that video, they spent, I think it was like a quarter million or half million, the market research to understand why that went viral. Um, the irony, right? And, um, and you see this too, Google, Yahoo, everyone's trying to understand why, who are the influencers and you know, what goes viral, and there's all these hypotheses, and it's amazing how difficult it is to predict these things, but they wanted to understand what was organic for us, and we can always amplify things, but what was organic to us, and that means, um, and for those of you who are doing startups right now, what do you stand for? What resonates? What is going to both make people look, but also potentially, in their case, spread happiness? And so they just really wanted to, they, did, they didn't want to spend their money on something that they know, I don't want to say it's artificial, but it was engineered. And the money that they could make and the money that they could save by doing something that was totally organic and then watching you know, where it went and why it happened was so much more powerful of an exercise for them. Yeah. By the way, I, just one PS, all of these individuals chasing the influencers, uh, one thing you see in social psychology research is the people that persuade, it's not so much that, you know, you're sitting around like, you know, you, you send out one tweet and everyone listens, right? It, I mean, there is some heterogeneity in individuals there, but it's that it, you have influence within a domain. So, like, let's say you're a cancer expert or, you know, a Coke expert or an athlete or, you know, influencers are domain-specific. And uh, I think individuals need to start thinking much more about the domains of influence and the power of potential weak ties, um, especially with these meaningful campaigns. So um, you said, like, we don't trust companies, we don't trust governments, and right now we trust our friends. But then the way things are going is, like, with companies trying to figure out who are the influencers, who are the friends to target who, are we going to be able to trust our friends? With yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you cannot. <laughs> There's a fewer and fewer number, I know. Um, so, so, yeah, and that's another reason why they wanted to do something, Jeff, organically, because... What's happening right now, and in fact, I even think I have a graph I'd just like to show you, is that, um, oh, by the way, this is kind of fun research. This is with Kathleen Voss and Cassie McGillner. We show that if you tell people, this is a, um, you know, a messenger bag from Mozilla.org, and I tell you it's from Mozilla.com, you think um, Mozilla is really competent, and you think it's warm and inspiring, but completely incompetent and needy. You think it's competent and effective, Mozilla.com, but greedy and not trustworthy. Um, so there's these incredible stereotypes that are coloring the ways where, and by the way, they only want to buy the bag from the competent company, but they've got this distrust toward the competent company, and the question is kind of how do you bridge the gap? What, um, what you're seeing right now is more and more brands that have that have a strong brand, a strong idea for employees. So these companies are building brands inside out. When the company's founding principle and beliefs and the story of why you exist is sound, and employees are so excited about the brand, with social media, which makes it more and more transparent, how are you marketing this? What do you really stand for? You know, if, um, yeah, uh, as these things become more easier to find out what the real goal is, you're finding, um, that the stronger brands are those that 
are not just customer facing and haven't just built up a brand identity and a set of assets and touch points with all their customers that are disengaged from their internal employees and why they were founded. You're finding stronger brands um, are built inside out where the, the, ins, the brand inside is so powerful and then eventually that is disseminated to customers such that they, when customers hear about some brand action, it's easier to trust that brand. So I didn't do a great job of head-on answering your question, but I will say that companies that have their head around this can start to cultivate trust and when they do engage a potential friend or when a friend does um, potentially tell others, I really believe in Levi's or whatever it is, they're more likely to resound. So it's kind of an indirect answer. Another question? Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. I always think of Twitter as a wonderful way to do lots of little experiments, right? Yes. You put things out and you quickly can see what things get picked up and propagated. I'm going to guess you have the same experience. What have you found in your experiments as you have been using Twitter and other social media over the last year? Yeah, so we found that the brand, well, I don't do too much experimentation yet because of a lot of different reasons, but I follow brands that do, like Dell or JetBlue or Starbucks, and, you know, there's different reasons to be using it. One is, you know, you got your discounts to Starbucks, right? And if you listen, then you get cheaper Starbucks. Um, but then it's really interesting to see, like, Zappos start talking about, you know, interesting uh, tidbits or kind of um, surprising insights or something that makes you laugh or something that brings happiness. So Tony Shea has a very different philosophy. I'm not going to just, like, tell you you get 10% off at Zappos. I'm going to create benefits that are not just price-focused. And what I think you're seeing is... Um, that's really fun is that companies that do allow experimentation by personal individuals, the personal brands are being built. So people are having their own little brand following. And then they tweet out and they have their own personality and that kind of adds and amplifies and increases authenticity and trust. And so I think that's so interesting is when companies allow personal individuals within the company or customers, JetBlue let the terminal man, have you guys heard of this? Uh, JetBlue did a $5.99 thing last year, and I guess again this year, all you can jet. You buy $5.99, you can go anywhere. So Terminal Man, he self-branded himself Terminal Man, um, bought this $5.99 thing, and he decided he was going to spend one month never leaving terminals. So he flew all over the United States, never leaving a terminal. And he would blog and video, and he became this celebrity, and these celeb- you know, medias would follow him. And then he started commenting on JetBlue service, like, sitting in the first class right now, not too shabby. You know? And then the pilots would come talk to him. And then JetBlue actually didn't just like, sort of try and you know, silence him to some degree. They, they talked to him, like, you didn't like this. Why didn't you like this? They brought him to his leadership conference, and he spoke and said, you people are doing it all wrong. Let me tell you what you should do. They, um, there's some companies that are hiring these types of people. So I think that, um, honestly, it's crazy. And so I think companies that experiment and allow personal voice to bubble up and experiment there are going to be so far ahead of companies that don't allow experimentation. Fabulous. Well, I want to end by saying, first of all, for anyone who's interested, uh, the Stanford Bookstore is outside with copies of your book, and also you can get your cheek swabbed. And I want to end by saying, you know what? This talk made me really happy. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. 
brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.